Platform listeners, Rachel from Clavu here. Clavu has recently helped Puma increase search-led conversion by 53%. We've also just introduced a host of new features as part of the Clavu AI product discovery suite. Get a demo at clavu.com. Welcome back to the Replatform podcast. Uh, it's myself, James Gerd. I'm flying solo today. Uh, Paul is out and about doing exciting things in the world of e-commerce. Um, today, we're going to continue our series on e-commerce privacy and compliance, and we're looking specifically at GDPR and privacy law with a UK focus. And it's such an important topic for e-commerce teams to get their heads around. You know, privacy breaches not only erode brand trust, but also can open up businesses to heavy penalties. And the GDPR regulations, one of the toughest privacy and security laws in the world, um, it was drafted and passed by the European Union at a point when the UK was still a member. Um, we still signed up to it, imposes obligations onto organisations anywhere, so as long as they target or collect the data related to people in the EU. Regulation was first put into effect uh, in 2018, and GDPR can levy harsh fines against those who violate the privacy and security standards. Penalties potentially could reach into tens of millions of euros. So there are multiple reasons why this has to be done correctly. And what we want to do is come back to this topic now. It's been a few years since implementation. Things have been implemented to varying degrees of, of detail, uh, and people have different ways of treating elements of GDPR, different interpretations of legitimate risks, and there's definitely some grey areas that have kept in. So what we want to do is to revisit this and think about, okay, let's start with some basics and then go into, okay, what does it really mean and how does it apply to an e-commerce business and help people think about whether or not they've, they've resolved all their requirements or whether there's still areas that they can improve in first. So in order to do this, who better to answer the questions for us than um, one of the co-founders of the Privacy Compliance Hub. So welcome today, Karima Nuran. Hi, Karima, how are you? Very well, thank you. Hi, looking forward to this. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. So before I start asking you loads of annoying questions about privacy by design, um, could you just give people an explanation? What is your background? You know, what is the hub about? Because I know you'll be able to explain it far more eloquently than I could have done. That's a great question. So my co-founder and I, we are lawyers. And that's quite important because um, the platform that we built is not um, a platform where we thought, oh, exciting, we can do something technical with the law that passed. We were actually really trying to legally solve for privacy. And the reason we came up with the Privacy Compliance Hub is because Post leaving Google, so both Nigel and I worked at Google for a very long time, we were um, legal consultants acting as outsourced GC for a number of technology companies. And these technology companies were, you know, in ad tech, in ad um, health tech, fintech, whatever it was, they had one thing in common. They had an awful lot of data. And this was um, prior to the GDPR coming into force. And the behavior of the uh, organizations we worked for was that somehow privacy is something that is done by somebody that has the title of a lawyer. And so they were very happy to sort of turn to us and say, hey, can you fix my privacy problems? And we realized that this is completely absurd because it's not the lawyers, whether external or internal, it's usually not even the compliance person that actually takes in data in an organization. The people who are actually collecting and deciding what data to collect and how long to keep it and what to do with it and who to share it with are not the lawyers. They're the marketing team, the HR team, the customer services team, the product development team. And so we built the platform because we realized that we needed to help those people to actually get compliance um, right um, daily and continuously. So that's the background of the platform, which is making sure that the privacy compliance story is continuously told by all the people in any organization. I think that's a really nice um, a distinction about the people who are having to do this on a daily basis, because you're right, I, I've seen this in some businesses where they will pay for a, a one-off piece of work from a compliance um, specialist, like a, a lawyer, to do a piece of work and give them documentation. But you're right, I mean, if that's all it is, then how do you ensure that you're using it incorrectly on a day-to-day -day basis and not making mistakes and letting errors creep in? So that's a really nice, um, I guess, a nice distinction of, of who the 
target audiences. And actually, James, I would add to that, the interesting thing is, even though we went away and did all this drafting uh, and presented it back to these organizations and said, hey, have a read, is this what you're actually doing? We found that it was very difficult for the organization to actually care and read because they still trusted the lawyer to get it right. So we flipped everything around and we asked the organization to do it themselves. Interesting. So yeah, I guess learning as you do it rather than being given something that you have to then uh, work out how you use it. Um, exactly. Long long compliance statements for a lot of business um, uh, users. They don't really understand the implications of it. It's a policy that gets put into a, a page on a website rather than a policy that gets implemented effectively. Exactly. Fantastic. So that's a really good framing for, for, for the episode and for, for why we've invited Kareem on here today. So I'm really looking forward to this. I'm not going to profess to be a privacy specialist. I'm not, and I'm sure I will learn a load too. So Kareem, are you ready for some fun questions? Sure. Let's go. Excellent. So we're going to split it. Uh, as we said, we're going to start off with a bit of a recap, uh, get the basics, especially for those who might be joining in who, who don't know that much or haven't been involved in implementing this. So let's do a quick recap about um, GDPR. So it talked a lot about the e-commerce industry. So for those who don't fully understand it, what, what is it and why is it? So um, the GDPR is um, a revamp of data protection law that had actually been in existence for about 20 years prior to the GDPR coming into force on the 25th of May, 2018. So actually, if you note, tomorrow is the third anniversary of the GDPR. And the reason why we needed a complete uh, revamp of privacy legislation in 2018 is because technology had advanced to such an extent that what was in place uh, previously actually didn't make any sense. So it took about five years for everybody to get their head around this. And eventually, the GDPR came into force. So one of the um, big changes that the GDPR brought is that it's a regulation. So that's a bit too legal. But what a regulation means is that it immediately becomes the law in all of the countries in the EEA. And that's very effective because what the GDPR was trying to do was to create a sort of uniform playing field when it comes to privacy across all of the European countries. And um, the, the effect of the GDPR is very, very broad because it does the following. The intention, the objective of it is to protect the rights of individuals. But you can only protect the rights of individuals if you help individuals understand what their rights are. But that's the fundamental aim. It really is the, the person that the GDPR is protecting are us as individuals and our data. And what the GDPR says is that if you are an organization anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, if you are going to offer goods or services to what the legislation calls a data subject, which is basically just a person, to a data subject in the EEA, or you want to monitor the behavior uh, through you know, cookies or of an individual in the EEA, then you have to comply with the GDPR. So you can see that it's not only organizations in the EU and privacy, uh, previously in the UK, but it's any organization anywhere in the world that is using the data of EEA citizens. So it has a very uh, broad reach. And essentially, just so that everyone understands what the law is trying to do, it's simply saying the following. It's saying, if you are collecting personal information about people, then you have to do a number of things in relation to that personal information. And you have to do that for the duration of the time that you are actually utilizing that personal information. So if you think about it, any organization that starts a business today, especially if it is tech-enabled, uh, so any e-commerce website, cannot actually operate without holding personal information. And it will have to hold that personal information until it either dissolves or stop, stops selling whatever it is selling. So compliance with the GDPR is a lifelong thing. It is not a project. It's a program. 
Um, and then just by way of a little bit more introduction, just to, to help everybody um, uh, frame this in a little bit more detail, because I know, James, you wanted really people to try and get something away from this. Just as a reminder, the GDPR is centered around seven principles. And I these principles are really important because they are very easy to understand. It's very easy to understand the legislation. What is difficult is applying those principles in practice in a world where data travels so quickly and it travels so quickly around the whole globe. But just as a recap, the privacy principles effectively say that if you're going to collect information about people, you're going to have to be transparent um, and fair in the way that you are collecting this personal information. So you can't just collect it for no reason or in a way that is a bit creepy. You can only collect this personal information for a particular purpose. So you can't just collect it because you feel like it. You have to first decide what it is that you do, then decide what personal information you need, and then process it for that purpose only. Then there is the principle of minimization. Don't collect too much. Because if you collect too much, you are immediately breaching the GDPR. It follows that if you have data, you have to keep it accurate. You cannot have personal information that is out of date. And that's a very difficult one you can see to um, comply with in practice. And then you can never keep personal data forever. That's called storage limitation. You take it in, you can only use it for as long as you need it to achieve your purpose. Once you've achieved your purpose and you no longer need the data, you must delete it. Again, easy to understand, relatively hard to achieve in practice. And then there's a whole layer of security around this data, and there's a whole layer of accountability, which is effectively showing the world how you comply. Gone are the days where you can say, I comply, trust me. You can't do that anymore. You have to demonstrate how you're complying. And so, um, just to close on this uh, recap, the reason why it's important to recap today is because in 2018, many people approached the GDPR as a sort of project with a sort of stop the bleeding kind of attitude. Like, where is my biggest problem? Where's my biggest risk? Okay, I'm going to stop that bleeding here and then I'm going to forget about it. And now is a good time to maybe go at it again with more sustainability or a more sort of sustainable approach to it. Excellent. That's really useful. Thanks for reinforcing the, the principles. And um, actually, a question I've gotten up before we start getting into a bit of the practical applications in e-commerce is, so that point about keep it as long as you need it, that, that's always felt quite nebulous to me in the way it's been interpreted. So could you give us an example? If I guess a business could say, well, I've got a customer and they bought from mm -hmm. me and um, mm -hmm. they haven't bought from me for two years, but I have their data in case they ever need or ask me about that order. So at what point does mm -hmm. the data become you no longer need it versus actually you do have a valid reason for still keeping this data? Okay. So I'm going to answer this question in, in, in two ways. So I'm going to assume to answer this question that the data doesn't have to actually be retained um, as a result of a law that is other than um, the GDPR. Because the way that data retention rules work is that there are some specific legislation, say a financial regulation or a medical regulation or an insurance regulation that says you have to keep this data for X amount of years. Those specific legislation trump the GDPR. Now, let us assume that the GDPR is the only law that applies in relation to data. And let's take your specific example, James. I have a client. Um, he bought a couple of things. I know his name and maybe I have the credit card details or I'm using you know, some kind of payment system. And I know a few more things. I certainly know what they bought. And um, they haven't bought anything for two years. What needs to happen is a number of things, and we're going to be revisiting this during this chat. But actually, you should have decided before you've taken that data in, you should have internally decided how long you're going to keep data, and you should have communicated to the data subject, the person buying the item, 
how long are you going to keep that data? So it's a conversation that happens before you even engage with a customer. And internally, you make a decision. You say, for example, you say, look, uh, our customers usually come in. You, you look at what you're selling and you say, our customers usually make a purchase every three weeks if they like what what if they like our products. If that's the case, then if your client or your customer hasn't bought anything from you in a year, then you don't really need to keep their data because they're probably not coming back. However, if you're selling a product or a service where people come in and buy it again after a longer period of time, say a year or even two years, then you may be you may have more of a reason to actually keep that data for longer because you can justify that this could be a returning customer. The point I'm making here is that the answer to your question isn't the same for every business. And it is one that has to be internally discussed between the various people in your or in the organization. And a logical conclusion has to be, um, has to be found um, that makes sense to everybody. And you're really trying to do what's the, what's the right thing for us to do here. And then you just have to decide that's how long you're going to keep it. And then you need to make sure you tell the person that's how long you're going to keep it. And then you need to make sure that you actually delete it if the event leading to that deletion actually happened. So I hope that that answers your question. It's about having a conversation about what makes sense and not trying to hoard data, but purge it if you don't need it. Now, practically speaking, I would add that you can have a little message to um, spark the the customer to, to return. So you could say, Hey there, Karima. Um, I know you bought this, you know, six months ago, and you know we value you as a customer. We we've noticed that you haven't, you know, visited us again. Um, if you don't, you know, if we don't hear from you, we will be deleting your data. So that gives you an opportunity to hook in the customer again. Yeah, I think the important point, which you've touched on a few points, is you've got to have a, a, a justifiable explanation for this. You can't just sit on it and say, well we want to keep it it's got to be a, a logical reason um which makes perfect you have to have it defendable you need to have a justifiable reason that yeah. you feel quite confident that you can defend yeah. and then the next thing i would add is if you go back to the principles the privacy principles we discussed at the beginning of our chat one of which was accountability that's one of the um items that you need to record somewhere We've had this chat about data retention, and this is the conclusion that we arrived at. Yes, audit, audit trails and not losing sight of decision-making, very important. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at some of the practical areas. Because what would be really nice to do is, is to talk about what, what good looks like. We've seen a lot of different implementations, and you would have seen a lot of websites and how they've applied different elements of GDPR. So um, we're going to look at privacy policy, cookies, customer accounts, and subject apps a subject access request, if I can actually say it correctly. So let's start with privacy policies. Like what does a good implementation look like for an e-commerce business? And do you have any examples where you think people have done this really well? Okay, I'm going to answer um, all of these questions, but I'm going to go back on, on just go back a little bit to highlight the fact that um, the implementation of good, or what good looks like when it comes to, to privacy is, the same principles for any business. So there is actually quite a, a natural flow that you can apply to any business, whether it's um, an e-commerce business or any other, as I call them, tech-enabled business, which has some form of platform that invites people to come in and do something. And the, before I go into the, the specific details of a, of a privacy policy, what we did um, at the Privacy Compliance Hub, because this was important, we tried to um, logically tell organizations the way that they have to approach privacy. And I'm just going to go through that logic uh, once to then demonstrate how the privacy policy fits in, because many people are still doing this wrong. So the way that you do the privacy compliance for real in an organization is that you have to get the people inside the organization to understand what they need to do. Because if you don't understand privacy, you're certainly not going to be able to do it. So somehow we need to start with the awareness piece. 
So first, you, you have to do a little bit of training of your people to explain to them what privacy is. Once they've understood what privacy is, hopefully they will care. And then you're going to have to start getting them to actually do the privacy for real. And the starting point is the inventory piece. And this goes before the privacy policy. So many people are still going, oh, privacy policy, great. I need to write a statement that tells people what I do with their data. I'm going to pick one from my competitor and I'm going to write it. But that's not the starting point. The starting point is the hardest part, which is your inventory. What data are you actually collecting? And then you have to map out how that data is traveling in your organization. Which systems is that data going into? Where did it come from? Where did this data come from? Did you have a right to have this data? How did you get your hands on this data? And then who are you sharing this data with? And then what are you doing with this data generally? So first, you work on your inventory. And once you have your inventory and the entire organization, the product team, the engineers, the marketing team, the customer services team, the sales team, the lawyers, the compliance, whoever's there, once everyone signs off on the flow of this data and goes, yep, that is how this data is traveling in our organization, then you write your privacy policy. Because your privacy policy is the statement that tells the data subject, so us, what is truly happening with the data. So the first thing I would say is you can only get a privacy statement policy correctly done if you start with the inventory. Then what you need to do is you need to ensure that the privacy statement, and this is kind of obvious and mostly well done by everybody, I would say today, obviously you need to present the privacy policy to the individual prior to that individual giving you the data. Because the whole point about the GDPR is to give me, the individual, rights in relation to my data. And so I need to be given an opportunity to look at your privacy policy and go, uh-uh, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't like who you're sharing my data with, and therefore I'm not going to share my data with you. So first, when you design your platform or the journey of the user, you've got to ensure that you get the privacy policy in front of the user before the user gives um, the data. And then we've really reached an age where we're struggling with the, the way that these privacy policies are presented because they're very long. And the reality is they're very long because the law has told us that we have to tell people all these things. So we're sort of challenged because on the right, on the one hand, we are told that we have to have clear, precise, succinct privacy policy. That's one of the obligations sitting with us. On the other hand, uh, we are told that we need to say all of these things about what is happening to the data. So there's a bit of tension here on how to present um, your privacy policy. And therefore, this is where uh, a new term, which is called legal design, and um, is sort of this is new and sort of um, on trend, which is try and get your privacy policy to be presented to the individual in a way that is palatable, that, that makes the individual want to read it. Um, layer it, choose your colors, use symbols, whatever it is that you can do. So that when the individual is presented with the privacy policy, the individual goes, do you know what? I'm just going to have a little look at this because I feel like it. So that's a, a really important point about privacy policy. So as a recap, they need to actually reflect what you're doing. And that requires a lot of work prior to writing it. They need to be presented before the information of the individual is collected. And then they need to be um, they need to be well written, well drafted, well presented, so they are appealing, and they actually lead to people reading them. And I would say what I haven't seen very much of, but I think it's a shame, perhaps a sort of um, a video privacy policy would be quite a nice way to talk to our younger generation. And sorry, James, I would add one thing. I did say to you that I, I, I would talk a lot, and you can. Oh, this is great. Quiet. People want to listen to you, not me. <laughs> my voice, my voice just sends people to sleep. <laughs> I would say one more thing: is 
the other thing that you need to think about is that the objective of the privacy policy is to achieve the transparency, where you are really talking to the data subject, the person handing over their data, and you really want them to understand what is going on um, throughout the entire relationship between you and this data subject. And therefore, it may be that you have an initial privacy policy, but then you have lots of just-in-time notices or little reminders or little like, oh, now you're about to do this. And when you do this, this happens. So really take your, your data subject or the individual or your potential customer with you on a journey that is appealing. I really, I really like that point because too often, and I've seen this in so many projects, the privacy policy, often somebody just copies and pastes some privacy from somewhere else, could be an old policy or from another website, and get somebody with a, a legal background um, to review it and make sure there's nothing wrong in it. They're seeing it as a legal tick box rather than well, actually, this is this is a policy that is uh, that our customers need to relate to, and it should be written by people who understand the policy, but understand customers and can put it in a way that's intelligible to them. And I love the idea that you just said about remind them. Don't just leave it as a passive document that you expect your customers to implicitly understand. I think that's a nice nice takeaway for people to think about. Yes, and you can also remind them. You know, you could remind them of various little points. Um, parts of your privacy policy. You, know, you could say, for example, let me give you an example. One of your obligations under the GDPR is that you need to keep customers' data accurate and up-to-date. Now, that's not a super easy thing to do. I mean, even if you're just managing a marketing list of potential customers you want to reta- you know, talk to, these people change. They, they, you know, they, I don't know, if you're selling, uh, if you're selling baby stuff, you know, they might have Two children, suddenly they have four children. And that point about going from two to four children is also very relevant, for example, to somebody selling cars, because that makes a very big difference if you have two or four children. So as you are designing your e-commerce website, you could create this beautiful space, which is you know the, the customer's account page, where, where the customer can see what information they have given you access to. And what you can do is then you can just really engage with the customer and send occasional messages and saying, hey, by the way, this is your customer page. Take a look. You know, we really care about your data and we want to make sure we still think your data is, is correct and allow that interaction between you and your clients to create trust and confidence. Yes, yeah, agreed. So let's move on to the elephant in the room, which is the glory of cookie banners, pop-ups and acceptances. So uh, the, the key question that I'd, I'd like you to tackle is, is it not, I guess it's, what, what is it that an e-commerce um, website has to do to be compliant? But, but secondly, why is there such a grey area? Because there are different ways in which these cookie banners are done. Some do it where it is basically very explicitly opt-in with a tick. Others do it where it's just a statement. Um, and there's different degrees of, of compliance behind the scenes in terms of when cookie tracking is set and when it's not. So I'd love us to pull that apart and talk about what is it a business should be doing. Yes. So I think the so the simple answer is, so first of all, I would like to say one thing that um, we've recently, for our uh, privacy compliance hub, did a cookie audit to investigate the type of cookies that were being dropped by various people on our on our website, and we were very surprised ourselves. Like, wow, wow, are these cookies appearing everywhere. We didn't. What is this? What is, what is this? You know, where are all these cookies coming from? So the first point I would make is that. Um, just like your privacy policy is a reflection of what you're actually doing with the data, um, you need to first conduct a real good inventory of the cookies that are available on your website to ensure that you understand what they are and start by sort of getting rid of the things that you're like, I have no idea why that's there. How did that get in there? So there is a bit of forensic um, that needs to be done, and that is done using various tools. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that the, the law is actually quite clear on this. Apart from essential cookies, uh, you shouldn't be collecting 
any cookies, you should not be dropping any cookies um, on any individual that ends up doing something beyond what is essential without them actually having opt-in. So it has to be off. The button has to be off and you have to allow the user to turn it on. That's the law. That's simple. It's the same for, for anybody that is doing this properly to comply with the GDPR. Now, I think that the reason why we are having, and so to answer your question, so that, and this is really, really important because this is what the law is asking you to do. You cannot enable and ask people to turn off. You must start with it's turned off and allow people to turn them on. Okay. And what is happening at the moment is that us as individuals have understood this, okay? Because more and more, because more and more websites now have these cookie banners, because the cookie banners don't disappear just because you arrive on the website, and because the cookie banners force you to engage with them. Now, what is a little bit of a shame, as you pointed out, is that the very Various technologies which present these cookie banners are being provided by various different third parties. And the look and feel is different depending on which third party you use to implement your cookie banner on your page. And whereas that's great for, you know, because there is choice and choice is always great and it means you have multiple third party providers offering these cookie banners, it's a bit of a shame from a um, data subject user experience. Because wouldn't it be a lot nicer if we had one implementation that everyone understood and it was uniform? Everyone understood exactly how it looks, what you are required to do to make your selection. Yeah, so that's we don't have browsers, that. isn't it? I mean, this this comes in. I guess I'm going to devil's advocate this now because I, I've always thought that that sites in, uh, having to do it doesn't make any sense because you're right. The user experience is often awful and especially on mobile and it's counterproductive whereas the browsers have the the ability to restrict and control like is do you ever see it going this way where actually the the compliance will be done at the browser level and then we can get rid of this mass takeover of overlays on websites or do you not think that the authorities will go that way no i think we will actually i i i think we are I think, you know, and this is part of the discussion that you and I had, which we want to have a little bit at the end about, you know, what is, you know, where, where are we going with this privacy? Absolutely. And um, in fact, um, I just posted on my LinkedIn page today another Apple ad uh, that they released because Apple is really keen on making, on selling by saying that Apple puts privacy as its fundamental principle. And they released a fantastic um, ad which made this point about the fact that you're just being tracked all the time and that actually you should be able to quickly, efficiently, clearly press one button and, said, and say, I don't want to be tracked at all. I would like to buy this perfume, but I do not want you to track me. End of. Um, so uh, the, the thing, James, is this is a very complicated debate, this cookie banner, because there are two things attached to this. If we are talking about an e-commerce website where the transaction is about buying an item, then I really, really feel like as individuals, we should be able to buy the item because we are actually paying with it, with good money. <laughs> so we are buying the item. And the trade-off should not be that the organization or the e-commerce platform can then do behavioral targeting, even though I understand that it's a very good and effective mechanism to grow sales. I think that that's, that transaction is going to, to end in the future. So some people will want to be tracked because they love the fact that an e-commerce website is able, is able to um, offer the types of goods and services that they want. But that is a choice that the individual has to make. Yeah. Equally, I should be able to buy something and just buy it. And I don't want you to recommend to me what I should buy next. So I think that's where we're going to go. I think where the, the gray zone is, is where the business model is that the, it's a free model where the currency is actually the data. And, and I had a lovely experience with this. 
which even me as a privacy professional was, I was a bit like, wow, okay, that's blunt. So I was, um, I was looking for a recipe and um, I typed in this uh, thing I wanted to cook and I got taken to to um, a French cooking website, which I know very well, and I, I rate. I think they're very good. I think that the recipes they have on this website is fantastic. And the cookie banner that um, appeared was super clear. Reject everything, I think, and then it said, or make your choice. And I thought, ah, this is beautiful. Reject everything. <laughs> so I pressed reject everything. And then I got a lovely clear message that said, well, thank you very much. But because you have rejected everything, you now have to pay for the service. And it was blunt, but it was fair. You know, in a way, it was a, it was a, it was a fair way of making me understand that that transaction, that my, my currency was my data. And if I don't want to give it, then I have to pay a subscription. Yeah, and it's transparent because it's there in front of I, I, th This is why I think it's, it's a really interesting conversation because at the moment... The the decision on whether your the the uh, privacy is is implemented correctly or not sits with the website owner, yes, the customer, and the customer has to rely on the fact that the website owner is not exploiting the grey area and actually setting some non essential cookies as well as essential cookies at the time and only if you then opt out do they block them. But analytics yeah. tracking, for example, some sites still by default set the analytics tags and only if you change the settings will they stop them. If it's done at browser level, the user is in control because they could then set the sites where they allow tracking and where they don't. So yes. And I and I think you know I think again though you can see that this is a um <clears throat> this is a a behavioral switch where is this something that the individual is going to want to do, you know? And it it depends on whether this becomes the trend. Is this how we will work in the future? We will, you know, choose the browsers we want to use and then really set our privacy settings at the browser level and then up to the various e-commerce businesses to entice us to do things differently, right? You could then send me a message and say, hey, you know, I noticed that you don't want to be tracked, but... If you turn this tracking mechanism on, I will be able to tell when you run out of toilet paper. Would this be a useful service to you? Right? This is just flipping things around to make it happen. Yeah. What's happening at the moment, if we're one step earlier than that, um, individuals are just starting to understand what's happening and still not very, very well. Because the problem is, and this is really at the core of what is why privacy matters so much. You see, it's not a problem that I give you my name and my last name and my address so that you can deliver what I bought. That's not a problem. That's totally fine. The problem is that this data is then being shared with various other people who have collected other data from my behavior online, from my consumption, from the way I live my life. And suddenly our, there are databases out there that know really too much about us. Yes, the recent elections uh, have shone a light on that in terms of the mass extraction of, of data files from commercial properties to use in, in, in targeting and persuasion. So I think, I think people are starting to get more in tune with the fact that it's not just about your selling patterns. Exactly. And the point is, at which point do we forget that we have not made the choices ourselves? Mm. So even if you look at how you are behaving when you are consuming something on Spotify or Netflix, if you're always allowing Spotify or Netflix to recommend your next show, you're, you're losing control of your choices. You're starting to just, I mean, it limits us as individuals. So we need to fight against this. As, as individual. I mean, this is Wait, bigger. I feel like I should have a Rage Against the Machine soundtrack on in the background. That's a perfect background <laughs> to this. But, um, I think that's really... Let's move on. I've got, I've got a question related because we've talked about like GDPR and a lot of people think about the customer-facing elements only, as in what does it look like in a cookie mm -hmm. and privacy policy mm -hmm. on the website, but not the full process. And you talk a lot about privacy by design. So before we talk about how that can be implemented, can you just summarize what does privacy by design mean and how is it more than just you know, implementing GDPR controls? Well, the, so the term privacy by design is, is not new. 
it's always been there. And the best way to understand privacy by design is by um, imagining that you are starting a business from scratch today. So you're starting it from scratch. And what privacy by design and by default is asking you to do is for starters, you are going to give the privacy element, i.e. the privacy principles that we have discussed that are outlined in the GDPR, you've got to give those privacy principles exactly the same value and importance as your actual product and what you're actually going to deliver. So you're going to consider privacy with the same importance as what what you're building, and you're not going to forget about it. And you're going to think about privacy every step of the way. And then what you effectively want to do is you want to build in such a way that you are continuously asking yourself, what is the impact of me taking this data set in today? What is the impact of me having this data set tomorrow in the medium term and in the long term? And what can I do to protect that data to preserve the rights to privacy of individuals? And what's really important here is that you can only do privacy by design and by default if you are um, having a regular conversation. So so if you are just doing a project-based thing where you are writing some privacy policy and then you forget about it, your product never stops evolving. It changes all the time. It changes all the time because you're adding features, because you're hiring new people, because you're you know, um, working with new partnerships, sharing the data in a different way. So your product and your company is continuously evolving. So privacy by design means that as you evolve, you think about the privacy principles and you understand the impact of this data. Yeah, that makes sense. And how? What are some of your tips and advice to people? How can they they start building privacy by design into like their, their processes and and what you know? Who needs to be involved in this? Yes. So this is this is really really essential because this is at the core of why we build the privacy compliance hub. And anecdotally, was quite fun to watch is that when the GDPR first came into force. The organizations that had to comply with the GDPR and went into a sort of panic mode had two initial reactions. And it was very, very flagrant that this was the reaction they were having. Either they were like, there must be a silver bullet. There must be a technology where I can just just plug in, plug in, plug in my data and and you'll do it for me, right? You're going to do something with, with my data because you have the technology. And the reason why people thought that this technology was available is because there were some very bombastic companies that was selling you one aspect of data compliance, such as maybe auto-delete or tag your data. And then they were telling you that's the whole of privacy. Okay. So people were looking for that technology solution. Or people were just going, oh my God, I can't do this. Can I pay anybody to take this away from me? And they would go to a consultant and say, can you just take the problem away from me? How much do I have to pay you? Now, if you think about what I just said about privacy by design, The only people who do privacy are the people in an organization who make decisions every day about what data to collect and what to do with it and who to share it with. That's a a certainty. It's the same for everyone. And everything in your organization changes all the time. So the only way that you can do privacy by design is as follows. And these are the top tips and and you, you, you must, all organizations need to mature and get to this to this position. One, you need to decide as an organization that privacy matters. And when I say you, this is usually the leadership team. So if the leadership team does not set the tone, does not say we need to do privacy well because we have a lot of data and without um, without customers, we have no company and our customers um, want, to see, want to be able to trust us. So it starts with a decision at the highest level possible that privacy matters. If you don't have that decision, it's unlikely that you will be successful to do privacy by design. 
you might be able to do some good privacy things. But you won't have privacy by design and by default. And then once you have the leadership team saying it matters, it's one of our core values, then you need to find a group of people who are actually going to have regular privacy conversations. And that's what we're calling we, but everybody else calls them this. This is not, you know, rocket science. You need a team of privacy champions. And the reason you need a privacy champion team is because if you don't have a team of people doing privacy, then it follows that you're not doing privacy. And nobody is going to build a company and hire people to just do privacy because that's a stupid way of building a company. Everybody builds a company in the same way. They come up with an idea, they get engineering, product development on board, and then they need sales, and then they need marketing, and then eventually they need HR in order to recruit people, and then they'll need legal when they get to a certain size. So this is the way people build companies. And what you need to do is you need to make sure that a representative of each of your departments, HR, marketing, sales, product development, also has the privacy champion hat so that they think about privacy by design and by default together. Okay, so that's my, my second tip is you have to have the privacy champion. But my third tip is that the privacy champions cannot work in silo. They have to work together. And I'm going to give you an example to explain this point. When I was still doing the, the legal consultancy, I had a client that was collecting a lot of personal information. And that client said, oh, don't worry. We built our technology ourselves. We have one platform which is built by us. We're 100% confident on the security measures. And all of our data just goes into this platform because our customers only engage with this platform. So we're good. I said, okay. And then I went to, you know, have a chat with the customer services team and I had a chat with the um, marketing team. And it turns out that every single one of these other departments was pulling the data out of this super secure platform and placing it in the other tools they were using to do their job, including, you know, their drive and very familiar. spreadsheet. Yes, very, very familiar, right? And so the point here is that you need to create a space for your champions to talk to each other so that everybody understands what everybody else's job is and how everybody else intends to use the data. And you need the help of all the other departments to say, well, if you need to do this to do what it is that you do, sales or marketing, customer services, then me as the expert on security or me as the expert on transparency, I need you to do that. You see what I mean? So this is the point that's really difficult. It's a, it's a collective, it's a group effort by people who were hired to do something else. And therefore, if I can take you back to the leadership point that I, that I start with, because these people were hired to do something other than privacy, if the leadership team doesn't tell them that it matters, why would they just spend their time on it? We're all busy. If I'm not going to be rewarded or recognized for that part, why would I do it? And yeah, that's the, why the leadership team is important. Uh, yeah, I fully agree. Uh, uh, having governance is so critical. To, so I've seen businesses where they've invested in new technology and they've set up their, their, their access and permission control and it's been locked down. It's like, great, we've adhered to GDPR and we've ticked off the boxes for our privacy. And then people internally export data and email it across open emails. And, and then you instantly introduce a potential flaw in data sharing because that person's email could be shared with anybody else. It could be shared with external parties that are not within the business, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I, I think the governance point and the team and, and people working together regularly is critical to it. It's critical. And that's something that people are still not achieving. And, and yeah. I really mean by this, if you look at um, a sales organization, right, when you look at a sales team, what do they do every week? They have a pipeline call. And every week there's somebody saying, are you committing this deal? Are you going to bring this money in? Are you going to do this? Every week, the questions are being asked. So we need to start behaving like this when it comes to privacy. And then I would say then what you need is that team of champions needs to work off um, a, a program. They can't just show up and sit in a meeting and go, okay, hey, ho, guys, what are we thinking about? They need to have a checklist of things that they need to think about. 
And here, um, many people have heard me say this before, but I, I would really encourage this. There is um, a surgeon called Dr. Atul Gawande who wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. And he wanted to figure out why during surgery, so many people died. And was there something that could be done? And in very short, he devised a checklist. And this checklist had nothing extraordinary in it. It had things like, is there oxygen in the room? Do we know the name of the patients? Do we know each other as a team? Um, do we understand which organ we're operating on? Do we have the right side? You know, things like that. You know, things that you we as possible patients would expect that this was automatically happening. But he literally devised a checklist. And that checklist in his context took about two minutes to run through a number of questions. And every time before the surgery, everyone would take the time to reduce, to go through this checklist. They managed to reduce the death rate by about 40%, which is an extraordinary number. So just extrapolate that and imagine that you had your checklist of the things in your organization that you need to do in respect of the data you're collected on a regular basis, how much better are you going to be than you are today? Huge. Yes. Huge difference. Yeah, and I guess even if people take one thing out today, have a, have a checklist to make sure you've got none of the boxes missing in your current provision. But uh, We talked a bit earlier about the, the, the future gaze and about where things might be going, where Privacy by design is managed at a device and a browser level versus at the web owner's level. What what is your take on where you think GDPR is heading post Brexit? I think you know for some clarification, as it stands, yeah, even though we're out of the EU, we're still part of the um, the GDPR, and we're, it's still completely relevant and valid in in the UK. Do you think we'll continue to align with the EU GDPR standards, or do you think there's going to be some divergence? Yes, so. Uh, to make that that point um, uh, uh, clearer, so the first thing that has happened is that the UK, obviously, as it was part of the EEA, completely implemented the GDPR in its processes. And when it knew that it was going to be leaving the EEA, it just introduced the UK GDPR, which is a mirror copy of the GDPR. So just as a recap, currently... The ICO, which is a UK regulator, is very clear to all UK businesses, just continue as is, comply with the GDPR, because it basically means the UK GDPR. And in any event, you must comply with the GDPR, because as an e-commerce business, it's likely that you are providing goods or services and or monitoring the behavior of EU nationals or residents or citizens. So the point is, just comply with the GDPR. Now... What the, the UK, what the UK is doing, and I really hope that the UK does not use this Brexit opportunity to start deviating from the GDPR, because it's just going to make um, the transfers of data more difficult. And I'm just going to explain that point, and then I will tell you what it sounds like the UK is trying to do. So the difficulty is that the UK has an ongoing national data strategy, which has sort of bombastic statements saying, we're going to be best of breed, we understand the importance of data, and we want to facilitate the use of data in order to greatly progress as, as a country. And you can see where they're going with this, right? They're saying, you know, if we had more, so take COVID, if we had more data and, and a better track and trace system, then you know, we would be the one country that would never have another COVID pandemic, for example. So they are talking, saying, now that we are of the EEA and we are a bit freer, how can we just be more nimble with this data? Now, that's a dangerous strategy. And the concerns that businesses have raised is, one, some businesses have actually invested quite a lot of money and time and resources to complying with the GDPR. So they don't want to comply, start complying with something else. But the second problem is that if the UK releases um, or is more relaxed with data or allows for more freedom and less obligations to respect the GDPR principle, then the EEA will start saying that transfers to the UK are not safe. 
So for anybody that has followed the debate, that's the issue with currently the transfers to the United States. They are deemed to be not safe and difficult to to achieve. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm um, sorry, I'm mumbling a little bit here, but just to say, I really hope that we're going to stay as close as possible to the GDPR because actually the trend is that privacy matters even more. So let's not relax something that already most people are taking for granted. Yeah, agreed. And I think that that point you said is really important as well, that even if we relax it, it doesn't mean that the EU has, and therefore it would add it would add challenges for businesses where they are processing data as subject to it based in the EU or where they're handling data that's stored in the EU, even if the subject's on. So it's, yeah, I guess exactly. deviation raises challenges. Yes, and if you think back of what I said right at the beginning of this chat, which was one of the perceived greatest gain of the GDPR was that it was a regulation and not a directive, which meant that it applied in the same way to all the EEA countries, which means that for businesses, it's easier to comply with across the European Union. Why would you now try and do something different? It's... Doesn't make much sense. <laughs> Given what's happened over the last two years, things that don't make sense seem to be the default course of action <laughs> for our country now. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So Absolutely. It's a breath of what can happen next. But um, yes, uh, yeah, agreed. Um, so we, we talked a bit at the start about the hub. We've talked a lot about privacy and GDPR and where things are going. What what resources um, uh, do people have like if, if, uh, to have access to, or, or you know, recommended reading, or how could they reach out if they wanted to learn more about what the hub does and how it can benefit businesses? Um, so, so, so from a, the hub perspective, if you if you want to know exactly how we operate, that. That's relatively easy to do. I would say follow us on LinkedIn uh, on our um, privacy compliance, the privacy compliance hub LinkedIn page, because we're really passionate about the privacy debates and we really try to um, help people understand why it matters so much. Because you have to remember that many individuals are still consuming products and services online without really understanding what is happening to their data. And I know that this podcast is about helping e-commerce businesses, but look at the world in this way. Um, We are all individuals that have, you know, if we are working individuals, we have a dual life. On the one hand, we go to work and we do something for an organization, an e-commerce business. And on the other hand, we are individuals consuming out there. Just imagine that as, as workers, as employees, if we really start taking care of the data of others, we all have something to gain because it means that when we step outside of our workplace as individuals, we feel confident that all the employees working for the different platforms and services that we're using are also looking after our data, right? So our privacy compliance page is really trying to make you understand why it matters and perhaps what help you inside your day job to actually go, oh, that's an interesting way of doing something. I'm going to do the same for the organization I work for. Um, from the hub perspective, it's very easy. You can just go onto our hub website and I would be delighted to give you a demo. Uh, I would also say that the ICO is a very, very good resource if you are looking for fast and reliable information. The difficulty with the ICO, which is the UK regulators, is that it can be a little bit overwhelming. So if you don't, if you're looking for something specific, you might find your answer. If you're starting from scratch, you might go, wow, this is a lot. I don't know what to do. And if you feel overwhelmed, you're probably going to step away from it and put your head in the sand and ignore it. So that's a bit of advice um, in terms of where to go. But it's definitely a very good place to go. Yeah, it's worth keeping an eye on the latest news and always interesting to see how they do things like their, their cookie policy management because uh, that's probably the, the the ultimate in terms of to the letter of the law rather than the slightly grey area. Well, at least if you follow them, if you follow them, then um, they can't get angry with you because be like, hey, I'm doing the same as you. <laughs> yes. Very true. Um, excellent, Karima. It's been it's been lovely to to chat with you. Um, really enjoy listening to you talk about this. It's you're clearly passionate about, it and it's such an important area for businesses to take seriously. So, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. It's a real pleasure. And yes, if I could just leave everyone with one specific uh, message. Um, 
Tim Cook said that privacy is the second or an equal footing, the biggest challenge of our generation with climate change. And it really, really, really is because it affects all of the things that we love as individuals, you know, the right to choose, democracy, um, being able to be anonymous in places, um, not having, um, you know, people's identity stolen. So it really is something that really matters and it isn't difficult to do, and it's a collective responsibility. So let us all pull together and just get this right for our benefits. I think that's a really nice way for us to finish off. So yeah, thank you for that 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 nice summary. Um, and thanks as always for people for listening. We really appreciate. It. We hope you found this interesting. Do reach out to Cream if you want to learn more or find out how the uh, the, the hub helps businesses like yours. Um, and let us know what you think of the episode. And stay tuned for next week. <laughs>